Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to Riverwood. If I've not had a chance to meet you, my name is Aaron, a teaching pastor here, uh, and uh, it's my privilege to get to take us into our next part in the book of Mark. Uh, before I do, I just want to say, if you are a first-time guest, uh, thank you for coming and joining us, whether you're here in person or you're joining us online. We ask all of our first-time guests to just let us know that they're here. What we do is we honor our first-time guests by donating $5 to Compassion International. Compassion's an organization that has a goal of releasing children from poverty in Jesus' name. They work through local churches and villages all throughout the world, and we would love nothing more than to make a small difference in the life of a child on your behalf. So all you need to do is fill out one of the connection cards that's uh, near the clusters of seats, or just send us an email if you're online. Send that to riverwood at weareriverwood.org, and we would be honored to later this week send that in on your, uh, uh, in your name. Uh, also, if you uh, want to see our announcements, you can find those at bit.ly slash notesrd. That's bit.ly slash notesrw. Be sure to capitalize the N and the R and the W. If you don't, I have no idea where you'll end up. But if you want to see what we have, uh, please read those anytime this morning or anytime this week. Uh, you can read about the food pantry, which is coming up next week. We're also looking for just one or two families who want to just come and help clean up the area around the building. Uh, Tim Corkin is offered to mow, but he said there's some sticks and rocks and some trash around. So if you just want a family outing and you just want to come and help out, just uh, let us know. If you're online, just send me an email. It's Aaron, E-R-I-N, at weareriverwood.org, or just put it on your connection card, and we'll just find that one or two family who can uh, do that, hopefully this next week before Tim needs to mow uh, again. All right, we're going to move on into Mark chapter 10 today, and I want to start telling you, uh, start by telling you a story from when I was four. I, I vaguely remember uh, my brother, who was two years younger than me, uh, we got done with our bath, and we had a babysitter that night, and so we're in our bedroom. We lived in a small little two-bedroom house, and we're in our bedroom, and the babysitter's helping my brother get his pajamas on, and I'm getting mine on, and I think what was going on was that the babysitter was quizzing me on the types of questions you ask little kids in case they were to ever get lost. Things like, what are the names of your mom and dad? What city do you live in? What's your phone number? And one of the questions was, what is your address? And four-year-old little Aaron proudly said, 810 Harrison. Well, I, then my little mind got spinning and was like, how do you get an address? Like, how do they decide the number that goes on your house? And my babysitter says, oh, that's easy. There's a number on the back of your dresser. You get your address from your dresser. And, and so whatever the number is, that's what goes on the house. It didn't sound right, but hey, he's older than me. He's smarter than me. So, okay, that must be how it's done. Now, the only reason I remember this really silly story, why in the world anyone remember this, I have no idea, but the reason I do remember it is because of what happened just a few months later. My family of four needed to move from our small little two-bedroom house into a larger home. We bought a much older home, but much bigger. It had four bedrooms. And so as we were moving to 111 East Summit Street, the dresser gets moved out, and I have a chance to see the number. Now, I'm trying to figure out, like, does it automatically change to 11 East Summit Street? Or do they have to change 11 East Summit Street to 810, you know, 810? And so I'm, I'm curious. So I come around to the back of the dresser, and there's no number. Now, 48-year-old me knows my babysitter was just teasing me because it's probably something I would do with a little four-year-old. But five-year-old me felt duped. I felt tricked. Because there was no number on the back of the dresser. The reason I tell this story is that I think that there are some people 
who when they move from this life to the next are going to feel tricked. That when they breathe their last breath in this physical realm and they move into the spiritual realm, they're going to discover that there's no number on the back of the dresser. Because you see, we live in a culture that tells us that the entrance into eternal life is by just being a good person. Like if you give enough, you know, more than you take, if you just don't tell, you know, too many lies, if you, you know, if you're just kind to people, if you just are a nice person, hey, heaven is yours. But today we're going to hear Jesus say no. It's like he's going to pull back the curtain and reveal there's no number on the back of the dresser. What we're going to hear Jesus talk about today, it's going to be offensive to our culture. The thing was, it was offensive to his culture in his day. But rather than you walk out of here angry or you end up logging off, like, forget it. I'm never going to be part of some closed-minded group like this. I actually hope you walk out of here encouraged. That when you log off, you feel inspired. Because now you realize just how much Jesus loves you and you learn the way into eternal life. And it can help rescue us from the lie of the culture. And that we won't be mad that there's no number on the back of the dresser. So Heavenly Father, I pray that you would work today that you would be the one who would communicate. This would not be necessarily just about what I've prepared. This would be about what you have embedded into your timeless scriptures. Father, there is such a heavy temptation in life to take the words of the scriptures and to twist them to what we want them to say so that we feel comfortable and, and it seems okay and it's not offensive to anyone. But God, I believe that your truth has been around far longer than we have been on this earth and it will remain even after we have gone And so that's why, God, I pray that you, through the power of your Holy Spirit, move our hearts, you would move our minds, that we would be the ones who would want to conform our lives to what you say. So God, I pray for the person who's struggling in their faith right now, that today would actually encourage them. I pray for the person who does not know you, that today might become their spiritual birthday. I pray for the person who's been walking with you for a long time, but perhaps has gotten their eyesight off of you and they've allowed other things to become first and foremost in their life. And today they would hear you call them to, to allow you to remove those things out of their life so that they could be wholly devoted to you. So God, I pray that you would do what only you can do, that you would speak to the wide variety of people listening to this and you do it for your glory and for their joy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, if you brought a Bible, I invite you to open it up to Mark chapter 10. Mark 10. If you are a first-time guest with us, uh, don't worry. If you don't have a Bible with you, we're going to be putting the Scripture up on the screen, even if you're online, so you can read right along with us. We just strongly encourage you, get a Bible. We don't care if that's a digital Bible that you download to your phone or if it's a paper Bible that you you pick up at Walmart or at uh, uh, christianbook.com. We just want you to have a Bible. And then that way, when you come on Sundays, you don't just rely on the screen. You can begin to open it up yourself and begin to build this habit and practice. We just believe that the more you read and study the Scriptures— the more you understand the heart and purpose of God and what he's wanting to do in your life and through your life. We believe this world desperately needs people who will love like Jesus loved and live like Jesus lived. And the only way we begin to see how Jesus lived is to jump into these scriptures that record his life and to study them. All right, so we are at verse 17. So join me at Mark 10, starting in verse 17. Please silently read along as I read aloud. And as Jesus was setting out on his journey, A man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? 
No one is good except God alone. But you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go. Sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by this saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around, said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, see, we've left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, well, truly, I say to you, there is no one who's left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the sake of the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Today's story begins with this young man. We learn later that he's quite wealthy. And we see him approaching Jesus and his disciples as they're kind of putting their bags together, putting on the backpacks, getting ready to take off on another journey, head to another town. And he comes and he falls on his knees before Jesus and says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? One commentary I looked at this week said that the young man here is asking what he must do to earn his way into the kingdom of heaven. But the more I studied it, the more I don't think that's the case. I don't think he's here asking, what do I need to earn this? Because he uses the word inherit. You don't earn an inheritance, but there's still a problem with this question. Because you see, with an inheritance, it's assigned to you. You're due to receive it. You don't necessarily earn it, but it's still set aside for you. So in a sense, this guy, by saying, what must I do to inherit eternal life, thinks that something about him, he deserves this. And after all, when Jesus throws a few of the Ten Commandments his way, the guy's response is, yeah, I, I got it. I, I, I honor my father and mother. I haven't murdered. I haven't committed adultery. Yeah, I got it. And yet, the, the fact that this man has run before Jesus reveals he still has some doubts. He's been doing all this stuff right according to his culture, according to his religion, and yet there's something underneath that's just nagging him. Do I have it all right? You ever had that and yet moment? That moment where you just have some doubt. You, you've been putting in all this time, all this energy, all this work, and yet, like you practiced and practiced and practiced to make the team to, to, to make the honor band. And yet, 
Or you go out and, guys, you buy the ring, you get the dad's permission, you got the proposal plan all put together, and yet, or you nailed that job interview, or you know you flew right past that standardized test. They have to let you into this college. And yet, that's where this guy is right now. He's rushed to Jesus. Usually rich guys don't humble themselves by getting down on their knees in Jesus' time. But this man does. And he stands there. He's like, okay, if anyone can help erase this and yet, it's this guy. I've heard this guy teach. He has authority unlike anyone else. Surely he can tell me how I can feel connected to God and I can enter into that eternal life. So he starts off, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? But did you notice Jesus' response? It's right there in verse 18. The guy calls him good teacher, and it says, And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, some skeptics love this verse, or, or people of other faiths. They say this reveals that Jesus did not see himself as God. But we have to look and realize, what have we been learning through the book of Mark? Back in chapter 1, we saw Jesus in the temple, and, and he reads through the scroll, and he's teaching, and there's this man possessed by a demon who shows up and says, I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. And Jesus kicks the demon out of the guy. We, we saw through that sermon that, yeah, the demon recognized Jesus correctly because Jesus is God. And the reason Jesus could kick the guy out, with nothing, kick the demon out with nothing but a word, was because he had authority as God. Or how about in chapter 2? We saw a story of four men bringing their paralyzed friend to Jesus. They couldn't get into the house to Christ. And so they went up on the roof, tore a hole in it, lowered their friend down. But when Jesus looked at the paralyzed man, he did not say, get up and walk first. The first words he said were, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees that are right there listening to Jesus, they're offended because they know only God can forgive sins. But the reason Jesus can is because Jesus is God. Or, or how about in chapter 4? We saw Jesus sleep in a boat. A storm comes up. The disciples start freaking out. They start to wake Jesus. Don't you care that we're going to drown? Jesus just stands up and goes, peace, be still. And immediately, the wind and the wave stopped. And it says that the disciples suddenly become more afraid. I mean, they were afraid they were going to drown. They were afraid they were going to die. Now they're more afraid of this man who's in their boat because they know in Psalm 107, it makes it clear, only God can call storms. So as we reach chapter 10 here, and we hear Jesus say, why do you call me good? He's not denying his divinity. It's not like Mark has suddenly had some doubts to go, oh, you know what? I think I was wrong earlier. Yeah, Jesus isn't really God. No, something else is going on here. I think first Jesus is challenging the guy. Like, do, do you realize what you're saying? Because he goes on to say, why do you call me good? Only God is good. I think he's challenging the guy's definition. In our culture, we have a really bad definition of the word good. To us, good means, eh, all right. Like, hey, how you doing today? Mm, good. I mean, I'm, I'm not great, definitely not awesome, but, you know, I'm, I'm better than just okay, and I'm definitely better than doing horrible. I'm just good. How was the movie? Eh, it's good. You know, like, it's worth watching, but now nah, I necessarily pay the money to go see it in theater, wait till it comes out on video or streaming. How's the restaurant? Eh, it, it's good. Like, it, it'll be fine to go there every once in a while, but, I, you know, it's not, like, going to be your favorite place. It's just good. That's our definition. That's not Jesus' definition. Jesus' definition of good is pure, 
holy, righteous, and only God fits those. So only God is good. And yet, as you study the scriptures, you discover that Jesus was the only human to have ever lived on this earth and never have sinned, which means Jesus himself was pure and holy and righteous. That's why he was the only one who could go to the cross to absorb our sin. If you and I had gone to the cross, we would die for our own sin. But because Jesus had no sin to die for, he could then die for us because he was pure and holy and righteous and good. But I think Jesus is also setting this guy up, not just challenging him like, hey, what are you really thinking about? Or, or do you realize what you're saying? I think he's setting the guy up because Jesus, after saying, oh, why do you call me good? Only God is good. They, Jesus then throws some things at him, the Ten Commandments. And the guy's sitting there listening and going, okay, yeah, I, I, I've done that. Okay, yeah, I, I'm good there. Oh, I, 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 I guess I'm good. But wait a second. God is the only one who's good. And yet this guy's like, oh, oh yeah, I, I've got it. I'm good. And that's when Jesus brings in what I call a spiritual gut punch. Look down there at verse 21. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Remember that phrase. He loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go. Sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Now, the reason I call this a spiritual gut punch is because of what happens next. In verse 22, we see that he, this guy is disheartened by this saying, and he went away sorrowful. Like, he is sad. He's someone who's saying, I want God. I want eternal life. But what he just heard was, yeah, but you're not good enough. And so the guy is like saddened because here's what the guy was counting on. The guy was counting on his goodness to get him in. Like if this guy had died and the people had shown up at his funeral, they would say all the same things that we say at our funerals. This guy was a good guy. Everyone liked him. I mean, if anyone's in heaven, I mean, he's in a better place. Because he was just so good. But Jesus just pulled back the curtain and goes, um, there's no number on the dresser. That's not the entrance into heaven. Your good works cannot save you. This is the theme we see throughout all of the scriptures. One of the most famous ones is in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. If you are not familiar with this, you need to know this verse. It's where Paul is writing to a church in, the, in this, a city known as Ephesus. He, Paul actually planted this church and lived there for three years. So he loves these people. And yet as he's writing them a letter, he takes the time to remind them of what he had been teaching them. And so he says to them in uh, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, not of your own doing. In other words, you can't earn your way in. It says, it is the gift of of God, you don't earn a gift. A gift is just given to you. And it's not a result of works. Why? So that no one may boast. This rich young man had been hoping and longing for this eternal life. And he thought, hey, I've been doing good. I've got it all down. And yet Isaiah 64, 6 says that even your good works are like filthy, bloody rags to God. Because you see, when we are in our sinfulness, even our best efforts, 
they're tainted. They're stained. You see, this guy, as he'd been doing all these good works, it wasn't just to try to impress God. It was also to impress everyone else around. They were tainted. They're like filthy rags to God. And that is why the scriptures teach, you cannot get to heaven through your good works. And that is why we see this guy disheartened. We see him grieving and he walks away sorrowful. It felt like a low blow from Jesus. But it wasn't just like a spiritual gut punch to this guy. It's also a spiritual gut punch to the disciples. Did you see their reaction? This, pick it up in verse 23. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they, the disciples, were exceedingly astonished and said to him, well, then who can be saved? In Jesus' day, wealth was seen as a great blessing from God. And so when this young man approached, the disciples would have gone, whoa. And then when they heard the conversation, and, and the guy's like, I've done everything right. They're going, whew, yep. If anyone's going to get eternal life, that dude right there. Because, I mean, if you just needed evidence of how pleased God was with this man and the way he lived, just look at his money. Look at his robes. I mean, this guy has all the possessions. He's doing really well in life because God has blessed him. Now, I don't want you to mishear me. Sometimes wealth is a blessing from God. But sometimes wealth can also be a curse. Because this guy thought that his money was proof that he had come to God. But actually, Jesus reveals to him his money was actually what was keeping him from God. See, Jesus didn't say, oh, kidding, I wouldn't let anyone like you. No, he says, no, there's just one thing you lack. Go sell everything. Because Jesus loved the guy enough to say, you have an idol in your life. You have something that is barricading you from coming to God. You value your wealth more than you do God. If you want to show that God is truly first in your life, go sell everything. Sell it all. And you will get treasures in heaven Tell me that treasures in heaven isn't better than treasures on earth. But the guy can't do it because he values his wealth more than he does God. He, Jesus in that moment reveals, this is your idol. This is what you value the most. This leads the disciples to just be stunned. They're absolutely shocked. It says that they were exceedingly astonished. Because, man, if this guy can't get to heaven, who can? And that, that's what they say. Who then can be saved? In other words, they're thinking, it's impossible. And Jesus is like, yeah, you're right. It is impossible. In fact, he says, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Now, I learned this week that the Greek word for camel, if you change just one letter, it means the word rope. And so some scholars think that it's not actually a camel, it's actually a rope. But it still stands the same. You still can't take a rope and fit it through the eye of a needle. But 
when I was a freshman in college, uh, I was at Simpson College. It's a, a Methodist, uh, started by Methodists, so they still had some, you know, Bible stuff in, in the curriculum. So I had to take this Bible class. And so in this particular class, we were studying the book of Mark. We came to this specific passage, and my Bible professor, who was a, a pastor, a local pastor, he had a, a doctorate in something or other. And so he's teaching our class, and he tells us the story. And I have found that it is a very famous story. It is that in, in the wall in Jerusalem, there was this narrow little gate, and you could not get your camel through it unless your camel got down on its knees, you took everything off, and you could then squeeze it through. And the gate was called the needle's eye. And so my professor says, so if you want to come to God, you have to get down on your knees, you shed everything else off of you, and then you can come in to the kingdom of God. And what a beautiful illustration it's just not true. First of all, there's not a guarantee that there ever was a gate called the needle's eye. That if there was, it didn't happen until medieval times. Like that's the first time they ever see any reference to this idea. So if it was ever there, it, it happened hundreds of years after Jesus. So Jesus is not saying, so what you must do then is get on your knees, take everything off and come in. Because that in a sense would be a work because you're doing the work. I'm taking everything else and I'm bringing myself in. And that goes against everything Jesus is saying here. He says it is impossible with man. But notice what he says next. Verse 27. It says with man it is impossible. But not with God. For all things are possible with God. Remember back to that Ephesians 2 passage. It says it's not by works that you come in. It is a gift of God. Paul writes about this even more uh, in a letter to a pastor named Titus. He says this. This is Titus 3, 5 through 7. It says that he, God, saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. So it's all God. God's the one doing it. It's by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You want eternal life? It is not going to be through your obedience to the Ten Commandments. You want eternal life? It is not going to be jumping through all the hoops that Christianity sometimes throws at us. You want eternal life? It is not going to be through your goodness. You try that, you're going to discover there's no number on the back of the dresser. The entrance to heaven is through Jesus Christ alone. It is all God. And so for us, it simply means we come to him and we humble ourselves and we allow him to be the one to give us the faith, to wash us of our sins, and to bring us into the kingdom. We try to do it ourselves. It's impossible with man, but not with God. With God, all things are possible. Which is why Jesus says this at the very end of today's passage. This is verse 31. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. In our culture, and I think in pretty much every culture, we're always trying to recognize the first. We're trying to see who has the best talent, who's the best looking, 
who has the most money, who seems to have the most charisma, who seems to get the most respect. We elevate these people. But what Jesus is warning us here is sometimes those firsts become lasts. You see, these things that we think, this is what's going to finally make me something. Like if I just have enough money, if I just have enough respect, if I just have the right job, if I just have the right spouse, if I have the right number of kids, if I have all of these really good things, I'm first. And Jesus says, you know, a lot of those things, those are beautiful, those are good, but they could be in the way. They can actually keep you from God. Those things that you think make you first, they actually will make you last. Instead, it's the very thing that we think that we is going to make us first. Sometimes that's what we need to give up so that the, we may feel last. And when we're then last, we become first. Now, I'm going to just tell you, it's hard sometimes to give this up. It, it is so difficult. But if I'm going to be a good pastor, I have to ask you. And here's, here's the question. What is the one thing that is holding you back from God? What's the, what, what's the one thing that might be holding you back from fully coming to God? For the rich young man, it was his wealth. And when Jesus says, all right, I want you to let that go so that you can have God, I can't do it. Maybe for you, it is your wealth. Maybe you are trusting in your bank account to provide for you. Maybe it's your stock portfolio. But some of you, maybe it's your talent. Maybe you've been trusting in this great talent to get you that job, to get you a hidden life, to get you attention. Maybe it's your reputation. Maybe you've been trying to live a certain way so that people think a certain thing about you so that way you can be first. Maybe it's an addiction. You've been keeping the secret from everyone else, but it's what you put first in your life. That this is what everything is about to you, and you're, you're secretly trying to get that. What is the one thing that's keeping you from coming fully to God? Now, please don't misunderstand me. I am not saying that in order to get God, you have to get rid of this. We just saw the salvation, the entrance to eternal life, the entrance into the kingdom of God is Jesus alone. So you do not have to do this, get rid of this thing to do the great work that God goes, okay, fine, then I'll let you in. No, you gotta flip it. The reason we give these things up is so that we can have God because Jesus has already done everything for us. And so because we have Jesus, yes, I will get rid of this. And it leads us to then say, the cross before me, the world behind me. There's no turning back. Jesus, you gave it all for me, so I'm gonna give it all to you. See, that's the thing we need to remember is that what Jesus asks that young man to do is what Jesus himself had done. Back in 2008, I had this moment where I sensed God calling me to start eventually what became Riverwood Church but I didn't want to do it. It felt like I was going to lose everything. Felt like it was going to make me last place because I was giving up a great job, a great church, great friends, a great city. I didn't want to do it. So if right now the Holy Spirit's saying to you, I want you to give this up and you're wrestling, I want you to know I understand. 
And the thing that God may be asking you to give up, it might be a good thing. Sometimes we've got to give up the good thing in order to get the better. Guys, Jesus is worth it. He's the best. So yeah, you can take that thing that has made you think this is what's going to help me be first, and you can set that aside. And yeah, it's going to make you feel like you're going into last place. But remember, the last will be first. But Aaron, it's going to be, it's going to be impossible to get rid of that. It's become so attached to me. Yeah, but with God, all things are possible. And that's why Jesus can say, give it up. Because he gave it up. Jesus left his throne. He set aside his rights. He took on human flesh. He entered into this painful, sinful world. But he then lived a spotless life to then go and die on the cross. He gave it all up for us. Because having you was better. So if Jesus gives it up for us, will you give it up for him? So that's why right now I'll invite the rest of the worship team to come up. Uh, I'm going to invite Salem to lower the lights and the ushers can pass the communion elements. When you take these communion elements, if you are a follower of Jesus, those elements are to remind you Jesus gave it all up for you. So as you take those elements, that is your reminder that Jesus is asking you to do something that he's already done. So if you need courage to give this one thing up, those elements can remind you. Because that bread is Jesus' body, which was broken for you. That cup, that is his blood, which was shed for you. And so as you take that, that's your reminder that the Holy Spirit can empower you to do what he's calling you to do, to give this up, because Jesus is better. Now, if you are not a follower of Jesus, and you just not sure about this whole thing, it's okay. Just let these elements pass by. You don't need to partake of it. What you need to do during this next song is wrestle with the whole story. If Jesus gave it all up, the one thing he's asking me to give up is everything. So will you do that today? Most people, when they realize the truth of the gospel, they will confess their sin. They'll then declare that Jesus, because you gave it all up for me, I'm now going to give my life to follow you. But I realize many of you have been doing this. This is your life. Jesus is at the center. And yet, these other things are trying to creep in. This world is trying to tell you that there's a number on the back of the dresser. And today, we need the reminder. The only way in is Jesus. And this thing that has creeped into my life that's trying to pull me away from the one and true and only, I need to let that go. Give it up so that I can have that which is better. So let's just take this next moment in prayer. At any time during the song, you may take these communion elements. But let us do this in remembrance of him. Let us do this in worship. Let us do this in surrender.